Martin hates boats. Martin hates water. Martin sits in his car when we go on the ferry to the mainland. I guess it's a childhood thing. There's a clinical name for it, isn't there? Drowning. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Lowe. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 112 today, which is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about? Well, it's my birthday. So I picked my first film-going experience. I was still in the womb, by the way. And that is Jaws from 1975, directed by Steven Spielberg, with Roy Scheider, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, Lorraine Gary, and Murray Hamilton. In case you don't know what it's about... A killer shark terrorizes a beach community at the height of summer. So, should we talk about such a well-known film? Is there anything left to go over? Haven't we raked over these bones in 44 years? Is that something that you think about when you program your choices? Maybe a little bit, but what it comes down to is I'm going to talk about what I want. And so this one is super (laughs) fun, and it's always a good time to talk about. So let's dig into it, because... This really is the Rosetta Stone of blockbusters, right? All the way from marketing, production, presentation, distribution, yes. And, you know, I've chosen some other bigger titles. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it's just me that's doing these big ones, like big Hitchcock titles, Rear Window and Psycho, my previous choice of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So my choice of Funeral Parade of Roses, you're saying that's not putting butts in the seats the same way that this is? pretty obscure. So I did pick this one just like you did Funeral Parade of Roses because I love it. It's never not a great experience when I watch it. I'm never not hooked, even if it's on TV and I'm halfway through it. I'll sit down and keep watching. So I think the challenge here, and it did turn out to be a really fun one, was to look at this in a new way if possible. And I did find things that I hadn't thought about before, never noticed before. And so, if nothing else, I hope we point out one thing that makes you want to watch it again. And that might be tough, because if you're like us, you've probably seen it 44 times every summer since it has come out. That seems pretty close to the number I was thinking of. Yeah, for better or worse, this really laid down the blueprint that every big summer movie would attempt to follow. Some successfully, some not so much. But the thing that keeps me coming back, the thing that sets it apart from some of those imitators is also the quality that makes it so rewatchable after all these years. It's never dumb. And we have something directly to compare that to, because Star Wars came along a couple of years later and laid down the blueprint that I think still plagues summer blockbusters. Audiences get upset if they are not given a basic emotional roadmap anymore, with everything simplified, telling them how they should feel at every step of the process. Now, are you a semi-fan of Star Wars at this point, or a complete non-fan, would you say? The only one I really enjoy out of any of them is The Empire Strikes Back. That's my favorite of the lot. It's not that I dislike the films so much, it's that I think they're given too much credit. I think it might just be that I dislike the people that like the films that much, that have been telling me 
for years and years and years. This is the greatest thing ever. When I can turn around and point to a dozen superior films where all these elements were stolen from. I do consider myself a fan, but I think that's because those movies are meant to be seen by young people and cherished accordingly. And I defy any other fan to listen to a lot of the dialogue in Star Wars without cringing. You can't do it. And I think the difference between Star Wars and Jaws is in that script. Jaws doesn't sound adolescent in the way that Star Wars does. Which is kind of interesting because one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it's just a dressed-up exploitation film. It's part of this rogue animal subgenre. And there are tons of them that succeed or don't to varying degrees. Grizzly, Piranha, Alligator. Orca was probably the most blatant ripoff of all of those. Much the same way that Die Hard later would become shorthand. You know, it's Die Hard on a bus. It's Die Hard on a boat. It's the same for Jaws. You have a lot of little Jaws. You have Jaws on land. But when I say a dressed-up exploitation film, it's exactly what you and I have been talking about so far. It sidesteps the lazy and dumb parts of that. For example, if you change animal for human in Jaws, it's structured kind of like a slasher movie. But what it doesn't have are cannon fodder victims that you root against. And it's not the first rogue animal movie by a long shot. The Atomic Age had a bunch of mutated animals and insects run amok. The Birds was a decade plus earlier than this. I keep missing those connections. That's interesting that you say that. I didn't think about those antecedents. But I do think Jaws is the best of that subgenre, and it's precisely because such care was taken with it. It is so precise. And I know that we often bemoan test screenings, but they were really valuable for crafting maximum scares in this case, sometimes resulting in adding or subtracting a literal second or two to make the timing perfect for it to be as frightening as possible. And this was supposed to be a commercial product. We can't deny that. A crowd pleaser. And that's the kind of perfection that Spielberg was trying to achieve. And boy, did he ever. It has humor, thrills, and adventure in a perfect balance with one happening just as you are coming off of the other so that your laugh becomes a scream, becomes a cheer. I want to get a hold of that Jaws script by Edward Albee and see what he could have done with it. (laughs) But yes, I want to talk about Spielberg here. This is our second time talking about one of his films, and I do think it's worth it. I think of Steven Spielberg, above all things, as intelligent, incredibly creative, and maybe most of all, enthusiastic, which is a great quality. When you talk about those test screenings, I think of him thinking like an audience member, I think in a good way, not a pandering way. He just seems to seek to amaze and delight us while still challenging us and himself. I think a good example of that is he wrote an entire separate script just for himself as an exercise to give sort of shape to his ideas. Some of those scenes were eventually used, but not all of them. And then he's got this obviously incredibly talented crew of technicians and artists. And the film itself has a great pedigree. We've got the original book by Peter Benchley. We've got Howard Sackler, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, contributing. Then we've got Carl Gottlieb, I'll get to him a bit later as well, brought in as a fantastic improviser. And then allowing the actual actors to ad-lib some of our best and most well-known lines. Every single element of this thing, they just knocked it out of the park. Let's talk a little bit about the iconographic perfection of that poster. 
first, you've got these proportions and the way that works on your subconscious. Because I never thought about it until you pointed it out to me. Yeah. In this film, they say the shark is 20 to 25 feet. On this poster, let's assume the woman is on the shorter side, say five feet tall. If you take her and overlay her image on that of this shark, that is the distance from the tip of its nose to its bottom lip. Oh, God. The proportions of this shark <laughs> on the poster are subliminally overwhelming. And with the positioning of the figures, it's like a flesh-eating rocket is being launched right at you, basically. It's a classic exploitation move. Everyone from P.T. Barnum to Roger Corman knows this trick. Regardless of what the content actually is, grab them by that poster. Actually, seeing the film, you know that it doesn't exactly go the way that you imagine from that poster. The movie you imagined was far worse than anything that they could put on screen, but by that time, it doesn't matter, and you don't leave disappointed. It's a piece of genius in that way. And then post-film, the effect that it had on beach tourism was significant. Beach attendance dropped notably in 1975, and I know that people make jokes about it, but that's monumental as a legacy. How many people can say, I made something that fundamentally changed how literally millions of people feel about a thing. That is astounding when you think about it. And part of the reason why I picked this is it's still very hot here. And the water calls to me during summer. It really always has. And I am one of those people who will never again think of the water without thinking of Jaws. It's impossible at this point, because, full disclosure, I can't look over the side of a boat, let alone the side of a pool, without thinking that a shark might jump out at me. I don't think I'm the only one. Maybe I'm really dumb. I don't think you're dumb at all, because you can't bring it up without people saying they still think about it, like you do, every time they set foot in the water. And that's the sea, inland, Lakes, the pool. rivers, It creeks. could be anything. Some of them don't even set foot in the water, period, anymore. Well, you know, I was born in Hawaii, and my dad has always said that pre-Jaws was very different than post-Jaws. They would swim pretty far out, but once he saw that film, never again. And he doesn't go to the beach anymore. Is there any other film that you could think of that has stopped a significant portion of the population from participating in some activity wholesale this way? Is there anything like this? Gosh, nothing comes to mind right now. Now here in Austin, the Alamo Drafthouse, they have screenings where you can watch this on the water on a portable screen floating on an inner tube. One of these days, I hope to get to one of those. Absolutely. I'm all for it. But no jackass better play <laughs> around under that water. The sad thing for me is that, as rough as this was on humans, the effect that it had on shark populations was really even worse. Shark hunts became kind of a sad side effect of the fears generated by the film. And shark populations, they really suffered greatly in the wake of this movie. But to get to the movie, instead of examining side effects all the time, this really starts off similarly to our previous film, coincidentally, Evolution, with these underwater sequences. And I tend to forget that, that it starts underwater. Yeah, me too. And these are not nearly as exquisitely shot. They're not meant to be beautiful. They're meant to exude menace. And you half expect something to leap out at you at any second. But importantly, no hint yet of the monster. Now, Jaws is not what I thought of. And I think this still may be true when I think of beach pictures. I didn't think Atlantic at the time. I always thought Pacific, Surfers, Frankie and Annette. This was a different feeling. All fun, beach party, all of that kind of thing. 
I should say I was landlocked up to that point. I was a kid. I hadn't traveled much. I didn't have a sense of this type of locale. And what I responded to, of course, as a kid is much different than what I respond to now. Those early viewings were all about blowing up my expectations. Now it's sort of about comfort as much as anything else. Because how else would you describe something like you mentioned earlier that you sit down and watch to the end every time you run across it? That has to include some element of comfort, right? It does for me, even though scares are kind of an odd comfort. But there are so many beats in this that are really kind of life-affirming at the same time. And in the opening scene, at least, everyone is still alive. It's basically kind of a nighttime clam bake, I would say, maybe a lobster boil, depending on where they are. And it's just an assortment of random young people enjoying the evening, and one girl who catches the eye of another young man decides to go skinny dipping. And for me, at least, it's very physically beautiful. She is as well. I think of the water as being a freeing experience, and we see her enjoying that. That one leg sinking into the water before everything starts to happen. This opening scene is iconic, obviously. What isn't iconic in this picture when I think about it? But of all the attacks we see in the film, are any of them for you as scary as this opening? No, because it could be me. I think keeping her mostly above the surface where you can watch the horror of the entire experience registering on her face was a brilliant decision. That vulnerability, especially combined with that flicker of false hope of clinging momentarily to the only spot resembling anything like safety, that buoy, it's perfection. And one of the things that I often think about with something that I've seen so many times is how many different ways that different directors would have shot this. And I can't think of a better choice than the one that Spielberg made at each juncture here. It's that thing of not finding an instance in a John Ford film where you can think of a better place to put the camera. And Spielberg took that camera and plugged that straight into our reptilian brain. And the sound design here is so impactful. Her being drug and she's thrashing, drowning, choking, and then she's gone. And so is the music. Yeah, we should talk about that for sure. The iconic score. And to me, it's probably the most potent example I can think of, of how much Spielberg understands and appreciates that this is a collaborative process. Because his immediate reaction to it was to laugh when John Williams played those notes for him on the piano. The da da And he admits to initially being instinctively underwhelmed, but he saw it through, though, and now look at where we are. That two-note ostinato, it rules our nightmares. All because Spielberg had faith in his collaborators, and that's evident with his actors as well. You already said, think of some of your favorite, most memorable pieces of dialogue and performance. I guarantee that some of those, maybe most of them, were improvised or otherwise some sort of actor contribution. Now we're being introduced to Chief Brody, his home life, as he gets this call about the accident. And I love the camera here in the house. We're sort of at forehead level, but slightly above it. It's really interesting. And I like, too, that we're seeing him in his boxers right away. He doesn't particularly seem like a figure of authority. Yeah, there are so many brilliant little touches here. I really love how much information Spielberg puts in the frames here. And the first time I'm truly aware of it is this scene, when they're in the kitchen the morning after the shark attack. The scene is only really a couple of minutes long, but I feel like I live in that house, and I know their whole backstory by the end of it. I don't know if that's a matter of having seen it 
so many times over the years, but it's so immediately comforting and enveloping. You get a true sense of family from it. And half of that is really just set dressing. It's super efficient. And it made me think to ask you this time, what new stuff did you notice with this viewing? What struck me this time over and over and over again, and I'm going to try to mention it without being kind of overwhelming, is that there is incredibly interesting, excellent composition throughout. You already started to mention it. And what I noticed this time, there's a concept of threes. We will see this over and over again. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. And we'll get into that more as we go along. I think this time what I noticed more was how much for an ocean film, it's not really focused very much on beauty. It focuses on work environments. Even once we're on the boat, the camera shows you more of the orca than the horizon. That beautiful shot of Quint silhouetted against the sunset is the rare exception, but even then, for him, that's his work environment. And Chief is about to get to work here. They've found the body. The deputy is there. The young boy who was there the night before is also there to help identify what's left. All we see, a hand and some crabs. And when they find this body, they establish this pattern that's really going to serve the film well throughout. Suggest more than show always, even if that decision is not based on a malfunctioning shark. Right. And that's even down to Chief not being able to keep level as he's going down the bank. This is where we have our first composition of three. That's the three men, the boy, the deputy, and Brody. All in different perspective. It's really beautiful to see. And I think that setup, it really allows you to take stock of what each individual man's reaction is, which I think is important because what you are basing your feelings on here is their reaction. So you need some talented performers here. And I don't think Roy Scheider really gets enough credit for being as versatile as he was. In just a few years to go from the French Connection to Jaws to Sorcerer to all that jazz and be spot on in all of those things, that's no slouch. What forever lives in my memory is the deputy's line of spittle as that whistle falls out of his mouth. There's another great multi-depth shot coming up when they get to basically police headquarters there in the village with the chief deputy Polly and that young man again. And then we see the village itself, which is incredibly all-American. There's a parade prep happening. And we quickly, very briefly, get an idea of what the stakes are here for this village. We depend on tourists, they say. And then we meet our other great character, and that's Larry, the mayor. The mayor's jacket here, dare I say this again, iconic. Is that the one with the anchors? Oh yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. I wish I had one myself. <laughs> you were talking about threes. There's a neat technical move here when they're on the ferry. It's one of those James Whale-esque moves in three parts. In taking Scheider into his confidence, he moves him into the foreground. Then, closer to the camera, away from the assembled group. Then, closer still, even ditching his toady, so that the only people privy to the most intimate details of this situation are the two of them and us in the audience. Do you think it was coincidence that the coroner here looks like Henry Kissinger? Is this going to be in the wrap-up how Jaws was all about Watergate when it comes down to it? Not for me, at least. Okay. I really do love, though, the way this scene being shot, it puts the audience in a privileged position, it feels like. I love the touch of Martin being literally cut off at the knees in the shot. It really says something. 
So speaking of all of this great camera work, let's take a second to talk about Bill Butler, the cinematographer. He also shot The Conversation, another one of our favorites, covered way back in episode 53, so clearly he's no slouch. He created some of the special equipment for this incredibly difficult water shoot, and then he went handheld for the film, not in the way that you might think. He said, and you can see shots of him doing this, he literally toted that heavy film camera, braced it on his trunk to ensure that he could get the right balance. And that was all to achieve Spielberg's goal of keeping a big chunk of the film at water level as if the audience is treading water. There are so many fun technical aspects of this that play on our subconscious in ways that we may not even register. This first daylight attack, it is a technical thing of beauty. It uses this slightly archaic and maybe exaggerated transitional element like a screen wipe, but it hides it in the movement of all the beachgoers. Almost like the way that Hitchcock pushed in on the backs of actors to do the real changes in rope. It has probably one of the most famous dolly zooms in cinema history. It has the split diopters. Bill Butler and editor Verna Fields are having a field day with this thing. It's a masterclass in film editing and their expertise makes it a pleasure to watch. The only thing I hate, the dog gets it. I'm so mad. That's Pippin. (laughs) So mad. Made me mad as a kid. Still makes me mad to think about it. What freaked me out is Alex Kentner, the young boy who gets killed, his float, I had the same float. It was a very common one. But I still remember how that feels against my skin. And we're still following the slasher structure, doling out little bits of the monster at a time. This is our first indication, though, that this shark is huge. But even that remains suggestion at this point. All we're left with in the sad aftermath is the chief, who is supposed to be the authority figure that will protect us, impotently unable to even go in the water and that shredded air mattress. And he's often to the extreme left or right or one of a crowd of many and not in control. Yeah, all of that contributes to such a feeling of helplessness. It really underscores to how it only takes an instant to suffer immeasurable loss. And now I say the suggestion of the shark is a smart move here, but we know that the malfunctioning shark is truly the mother of invention in this case. And I know it was probably frustrating for the filmmakers at the time, but I am grateful that it turned out to be different from how it was originally conceived. Show less, scare more. It does have its gore and violence, though. A severed leg, a severed head, a fountain of blood when the Kintner kid gets it. Quint literally being eaten alive. And the shark at the end suffers the most gruesome fate of all. That was a mainstream movie, and so I think for a lot of people that wouldn't normally go to see a small genre picture, this was possibly the most grisly thing that they had encountered in their lives up to that point. I guess maybe not the same audience that saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I wouldn't think the crossover would be. I mean, sure, I bet there were some people that were the same, but for the mainstream vanilla filmgoers that thought this was going to be a fun Saturday matinee, Surprise. I mean, I was five, and so I hadn't seen a lot to compare to it, but I certainly remember it being galvanizing. The Kintner boy getting it is probably the most daring set piece of all, I think, because they also went to great lengths editing the thing to make sure that it received a PG rating, not an R rating, intentionally so that kids could go see it freely. Who were the same age as Alex Kintner, possibly. Exactly. They were setting us up for that. To see that and think very specifically, that could be me. 
Well, thank goodness Spielberg made E.T. and taught us it was okay <laughs> to love again. But seriously, we're now on to the aftermath of Alex's death. And that's the $3,000 reward that his mother is posting and the subsequent town meeting. So this, to me, even though we're introducing Quint, which is a very big deal, is also about the stakes again. And really, culpability. Townsfolk say, are we going to be on welfare all winter if the beaches get closed? So it's really those two choices, not really public safety focused. Or focused on the tragedy, because there are a fair amount of these assholes that think this is funny, even though a kid is dead not 24 hours ago. You are so right. And the dog. These are obviously history's greatest monsters. So then how much evidence does everyone need? Is ignoring the problem worth not being on welfare? I mean, we are talking about people living close to the bone. These are not rich property owners here. These are not city fat cats. But does it make them any less culpable? But ultimately, that's not what the film is about. We are about the action here. I do think it's interesting to think of that as you watch it again. Well, Quint's ready to take full responsibility. And his entrance here, iconic. The nails on the blackboard, I anticipate that. Just sends a chill down my spine. The beautiful touch that he's eating potato chips. <laughs> and I love how the camera moves down as soon as his voice comes across and then along at his seated level and it stays there until he gets up to leave. No one in this room is as important as he is. So we have that first glimpse of a potential shark hunt. And meanwhile, Chief Brody is reading about sharks in real life, how they work. And this reminds me, you told me a long time ago, I think you did some myth busting back in school. Well, it wasn't exactly myth busting exactly, but I was about sharks the way that some kids are about dinosaurs or trucks, memorizing the different types, poring over encyclopedia entries, probably rattling off trivia at absolutely no one's request whatsoever. I gave a speech about sharks in 4-H. They're fascinating. And I had a really neat real-life experience with them one time when I was 10 on a trip to the beach in Rockport, Texas. Whoa, I can't wait to hear about this. One time we saw dozens, maybe hundreds of them, whatever they were feeding on had come in closer to the shore than normal, and the sharks followed. We didn't swim that day, of course, the beach was closed, but looking out over the water, I thought it was so cool, and I'm probably in the minority. I certainly was then, because Jaws has contributed to a lot of popular misconceptions about sharks that made sharks something of the ultimate villain for a whole generation of Americans for a long time. Peter Benchley, in fact, was so affected by the aftermath that he became devoted to shark conservation in the latter half of his life. It definitely didn't ruin the ocean or swimming for me the way it did for your dad or some other people, though. That's obviously not the case for you. We still go as often as we can. So what effect did it have on you? I do still think about it. And when I lived in L.A., I wanted to take up surfing and I started a lesson and that happened to be a day that the day before someone had been attacked. That was a summer of some attacks. So it did freak me out, even though my instructor kind of downplayed it. And I don't really know what to make of that. Is that being smart or is that being dumb? I do remember, though, you and I, this is maybe two years ago, I would say. We were at the beach again in Texas, and we saw some fins. 
we figured out they were what dolphins or mm -hmm. porpoises but there for a moment i remember that feeling of freezing up and wondering how quickly can i make it back and it's funny that in this scene as well martin talks about not wanting to make his kids permanently afraid i like to feel like i have a healthy respect for nature and i really do feel an awe for something that's so well designed and so pure of function as the great white shark. And we talked about this sort of in our Texas Chainsaw Massacre episode too. Sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're in this shark's house. What do you expect it to do? It's fucking way she goes. Way of the road, boys. Way of the ocean. <laughs> and I've always been pretty innately aware of and comfortable with the fact that it's all just chaos. There's nothing personal about it. So as a result, it's been pretty easy to not let things like this prevent me from doing what I want, you just play the odds. If you're at Rockport and there are hundreds of fins visible in the water, just go do something else that day. Absolutely. Play on the sand, make some sandcastles. There are some people coming up who really didn't take the smart advice. There's a very poorly planned fishing expedition, as it were. Two minor characters decide to do some night chumming to see if maybe they can get that reward. And... The terrifying part here is real when that dock turns around and comes after them. Yeah, did we say that the townspeople aren't taking this completely seriously? In a way that I love, though, the movie isn't either exactly, and it's still leaning on those exploitation roots a little. This scene with the pot roast on the big hook on the pier, it's exaggerated, it's comic. And when that section of the pier turns around and heads back, that is a great and scary visual joke. It's the shark equivalent of a pie fight, it feels like to me. It's really funny. It still scares me, though, because it makes me think he doesn't just want to eat. He wants to terrorize. It really does play like comic relief to me in a standard exploitation film. And it's great, I think, that the movie has this sense of humor. It's another thing that makes it so enjoyable year in and year out. I guess that really is the relief part mm -hmm, of definitely. comic relief. It gives you a moment to take a breath. And it continues as Dreyfus arrives and all the loonies are setting out to collect this bounty. This is the first time in my life that I was aware of the concept of chumming, which I found fascinating as a kid. And the way it's represented here is really striking. Spielberg was very specific about the color red being exclusively used for blood in the water and nothing else. You do see small dots of it here and there, flags, a bandana. But yes, red is dominated by blood here. There's another great three. Again, we get the introduction of Richard Dreyfuss as Matt Hooper, and we've got the chief, the deputy, and Matt. Really fascinating. Now, we also have some really fun ad-libbed lines here. The man playing Ben Gardner really served as an inspiration to Robert Shaw's portrayal of Quint. He ad-libbed all of that stuff. But that leads me to a person I want to talk about here, and that's Carl Gottlieb I had mentioned before. He plays one of the mayor's toadies. He's basically the newspaper editor. Now, he was brought on because of an impending writer's strike at the time of production. And so Spielberg knew him as an actor. He comes from the committee, which was a great improv group that started in San Francisco, moved to L.A. Also included Rob Reiner and Howard Hessman, by the way. So he was brought on as an actor with the understanding that he if on hand, could help make changes to the script if necessary, and could help facilitate an environment of improv. And I love his stated approach here, and that was first that Spielberg wanted to remove so many of the subplots from the book, and there are a lot of them. 
Matt Hooper has an affair with Mrs. Brody. There's a mafia involvement. But Spielberg said, this is a quote-unquote straight-line adventure story. And so Carl Gottlieb said, in a straight-line adventure story, anything that doesn't contribute to the suspense, the humanity, or the adventure has to go. And they also changed one of the important characterizations, and that's Matt Hooper. He's fundamentally different here, and I credit Dreyfus in the screenplay for that. In the book, he's more of this kind of all-American beefy guy, and of course, Richard Dreyfus is not really that. I'm such a big fan of his, he always makes the movie for me. Even as much as you badmouth Let It Ride? <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame him for that one. Well, I love Dreyfus's reaction at the post-mortem. This is when you really get the first sense of who he is. And it's more suggestion of the carnage that we have to vividly imagine based on how it's reflected in his reaction. This is not a boat accident. We were talking about casting options earlier. You told me that Spielberg wanted the cast of The Last Picture Show for some of these roles. I see Donald Sutherland when I think of replacements for Hooper. But I think his stature may have been too much of a challenge to Shaw. It certainly would have been a different dynamic. Moby Dick is not the same story if you have two other characters that can hold their own against Ahab. Because Quint here has got to be angry about something. He's got to compete about something. In calling him a college boy, he then just has his size to try to be imposing. Now this crazy shark hunt, it does produce results. A shark is caught, but this is nothing to celebrate to me as a viewer. Everyone's all smiles, though, until Mrs. Kentner comes upon them like death and delivers that slap heard round Amity because they knew and did nothing about it. And I'm always struck in this scene by the nonsensical things that grief makes you say. It really catches me up every time she says, I wanted you to know that. I wanted to get your, Erica, your impression of that. Grief is such an impotent emotion. Why feel the need to express it this way? Because she can't tell the shark. She can't explain to the shark what's been taken away from her. She has to lash out at something, it seems like, in this moment. I don't know that necessarily I would do the same thing, but I do get it. At any rate, the party's over. And now there's a really beautiful moment of reflection. The chief taking a moment to focus on what he has, his family. That beautiful moment that just happened with his little boy mirroring what he does. There are two things about this. It reminds me that there's more to the score than just the ominous theme that we all know. And then that give us a kiss business. This is my favorite sequence. I don't know if we're going to get into that now if you want to or not. Go for it. And I guess I really should delineate between favorite sequences and what they conjure up in me involuntarily and then favorite moments of performance because I have some in each column. This one, though, is the very, very top for me. It's my favorite moment in the entire film. Now, this is broken up a little bit when Dreyfus drops by, but it still maintains this convivial feel. Throughout the film, I think the chemistry between Dreyfus and Scheider is a real high point. I get the feeling that they have a true affection for one another. And I know that Dreyfus and Shaw were at odds, but that too works in the film's favor. And this is where we took our scene from. And I pick that in part, number one, because it makes me laugh every time, just his delivery of drowning. And also because we haven't talked much about Lorraine Gary and what she brings, and I do tend to not think about her a lot. But Spielberg chose her because of her naturalism, and I think you can see that there. I truly believe her. And also when we're talking about impotent grief, 
She's really personifying that, the person she can't get to, the person she can't get to talk to her. Yeah, we should really underline what a great choice she was because at no point do I disbelieve anything she does. I always believe that she is a mother and a wife and then a woman on her own separate of those things. I'm glad that they cut out the soap opera element of that, but I really do wish that they could have found more ways to work her into the story. I will say that having read the book, which was inspired by watching the movie, it made me seek out the book. The one thing that I always remember from it is that affair that she has. There's a moment when she, Mrs. Brody, finally trying to be seen as something other than in the shadow. And Matt Hooper is completely caught up in his own orgasm at this point, And she taps him and says, hey, I'm here. And when you describe that, I can see Lorraine Gary delivering that pitch perfectly. So yeah, she's an excellent choice for this. She's going to be shut out again, though, because the chief and Hooper decide they got to go cut that shark open and make sure it's not the right one. And to me, this is another one of those instances of exploitation comedy. You have a can, a license plate, these really exaggerated elements that, to me, are fantastic visual jokes. But now that they've proven that this isn't the one, they still have to go out. And it's a night feeder, so we go out in the dark and in the fog. And they stumble upon Ben Gardner's boat. And I remember expecting this to be the biggest scare. But it didn't affect me like it apparently did other people. And this is the one that Spielberg went back to get. This is the extra scare that he added. But for some reason, it doesn't rank high up on the tense moments list in this film for me. That immense tooth is cool, though. It sure is. It does scare me every time. It's the one eye. Oh, I can vouch for that. I was sitting next (laughs) to you on the couch. I'll tell you about it a moment later on that also made me jump again for the upteenth million time. And now they need to convince the powers that be that this is real. And that's Larry, the mayor. There's a great three piece here again, trying to convince him. And we see the camera moving lower and lower in this scene as they're constantly changing places and moving along this plateau. I almost used that scene because him saying, you'd like to get your picture in the National Geographic always makes me laugh too. Well, whatever's happened up until now, it's apparently not enough to get the mayor to pull the plug on the 4th of July festivities because the tourists are arriving on the ferry, the big weekend is kicking off, and with my predilection for true crime, I would be remiss at this point if I did not mention the Lady of the Dunes unsolved murder case. And you had to tell me about this one, too. This is really fascinating. In Provincetown, Massachusetts, at the tip of Cape Cod in the summer of 1974, a young woman was discovered murdered on a blanket in the dunes. Under her head was a blue bandana and a pair of jeans. A number of her teeth were removed, and she was missing a hand and a forearm, presumably to eliminate identifiable characteristics. Got it. Not an animal attack. No. There is speculation that she is an extra in Jaws. Since it was shot in the summer of 74 in Martha's Vineyard, the author Joe Hill claims that he saw a woman in the sequence of people arriving for the 4th of July that matched the description of the young woman. Her body has been exhumed three separate times to try to come up with some piece of evidence that will crack this case so far to no avail. Now, do you know the moment she appears, the moment that I'm talking about? I don't. Are you able to see her? Have you spotted her? Yeah, you can freeze frame it and see her very distinctly, sort of isolated from the rest of the crowd, looking off 
to the right-hand side. Oh gosh, you're going to have to show it to me. She does get your attention. I don't think, though, even if it is her, that her appearance in the scene is going to lead to cracking the case in any way. I think DNA is ultimately what's going to identify her, hopefully sooner than later, and then that will lead to associations that will identify the killer. But it is interesting, though, and it adds a real layer of melancholy to the film for me. Probably to you once I show you her. Absolutely. Yeah, from this point on, anytime I see that scene on the ferry, I think that's her, whether it's true or not. Well, I guess Orange Socks just recently got identified finally after decades, so maybe, hopefully. Are we going to go off on Henry Lee Lucas tangent now? (laughs) We won't. Okay. Let's talk about the mayor instead of Henry Lee Lucas. He just won't listen. Two deaths in one week. I don't know what a public official wants more than that. And if you think it's so goddamn safe, you get in the water. But I guess there's not a lot of decorum or chivalry in the face of a potential shark attack. And the beaches are completely crowded, but nobody's getting in the water yet until they do. And that's a moment for some young pranksters. And it's tipped off to us, really importantly, that there's no iconic music playing underneath them. But Michael, young Michael Brody, is in the pond, and then there's a big switcheroo, and that's where the shark is. And I like here that so much of this is really important emotion or information being conveyed, but it's in a crowd, not close up, just like Michael in the pond. This is the first time we really get the idea of the size of this animal. It is immense. And we have another death as well. But the most important thing that happens here is that the participation of Michael in this, he's the motivation for this pursuit. He is what makes this personal for Chief Brody. And so the mayor is going to sign this voucher whether he wants to or not. The shark brought the fight to him. (laughs) I like Murray Hamilton here basically cracking up, talking to himself that he's finally acting in the town's best interest. I love this character note that even though he's signing it, he still won't look at it. And now we're about to have our three composition that's going to be in place for a long time. And that's Hooper and Quint and Brody. This is the shark hunt, finally. Now, for me, I think about Robert Shaw in relation to the sting, and then when I finally got to see A Man for All Seasons just this year. One of my all-time favorites. And those are the two things that Spielberg watched just before this that got him to think about casting Shaw as well. His range is so incredibly striking, too. And it takes the incredible bluster of someone like Robert Shaw to really pull this off. Quint tests Hooper. Quint tests everyone. We have a little bit of foreshadowing here. The cage is brought onto the boat. We have a nifty little song, Farewell and Adieu, You Fair Spanish Ladies. And this is one of those films, even though it's a three-act structure, and I know that, it feels like a film that's just two distinct halves. A film like Full Metal Jacket, that is first half, second half. I think the same thing. And I realized that it struck me at a very young age that that moment... When they are leaving harbor and the camera goes through the jaws and the music starts to come up that we're seeing the end of something and the beginning of something else. And it's great that you mentioned the music because from here on it becomes an adventure film. This is a swashbuckling theme that we hear, but it's not just an adventure film either. It becomes also about the human interaction between the three points on this triangle. So Hooper is science, ostensibly. Brody is 
the working man? Is he just dad in general? Every man? I've read that Quint is supposed to be mysticism. I think of him more as the old ways. Not exactly the same thing. If you want to bridge the two, are we talking arcane knowledge, I guess? If you want to put something that is directly in between those two places? Maybe, but it still seems relevant. I don't know. I don't see that there's a huge distinction necessarily. And I do find it interesting that we don't really have that debate anymore about working class hero versus college boy. Maybe now we just complain about millennials, I guess. I also love that thing you were mentioning about Carl Gottlieb and how we strip everything else away from this because we get a little bit of foreshadowing, not just the cage, but you screw around with these air tanks and they're going to blow up. Nothing in this film is wasted. Not a line, not an insert shot. Every single tiny piece of it works to either move the plot along or make the characters more three-dimensional. And then coming up here, we have my second favorite sequence in the film, when Shaw slowly and quietly is clipping himself into this harness because of how attuned to his surroundings he is. I love this mostly because of how enamored I am of people who are the best at what they do and how this is such a distilled instance of demonstrating that instinct that sets Quint apart from the rest, that arcane knowledge that we're talking about. But even with that, even as knowledgeable as he is and how great his instincts are, it also conveys that they're fighting something unprecedented, that even with his experience, there is no way to quite understand the scope of what it is that they're up against. I love that that information is also conveyed in the tick of the <laughs> line and a couple of bubbles. So at this point in the film, we're about an hour 15, and then it's roughly around an hour 20, just right on two-thirds of the way through the film, that we finally see the shark breaking the surface, getting our biggest glimpse of him so far. And there's no music here, which freaks me out every single time. Just the water breaking over him. And this is when we know we're going to need a bigger boat. It looks like a battered old monster, which is incredibly perfect. The chief knows that he's out of his element. They're all out of their element against this foe, but he is the only one that is smart enough to know it. And that's a very specific thing, I think. Because, like you said, there are three distinctly different kinds of intelligence on this boat. None of them necessarily more important or better than the other. They all three need to work in concert with each other. And we see that start to take place here, especially. And the score really makes this for me, too. When we see this first barrel chase sequence, I love these barrels. This is another piece of genius. A much cheaper suggestion that persistent death is there, hovering in the margins. And when I started looking into it, when I realized we really never see this shark, the shark is only visible on screen for a total of about four minutes in this entire film. So now we probably have arguably most people's favorite scene, I would say. This is my favorite piece of performance. That's why I was saying I need to delineate between those two things earlier. It makes sense. This is a campfire story, basically, told at night in the hold of the boat about Quint's experience on the Indianapolis. Probably like a lot of people who were younger when they saw it, this was my first introduction to the Indianapolis. I think it's great that they're segueing in from sharing scars and war stories into a literal war story. I, with my 
pouring over encyclopedia entries, I actually knew the Indianapolis story before I saw the movie, and it is horrifying. His story is no exaggeration whatsoever. And this scene never gets less interesting to me. I'm always hanging on every word. Yeah, me too. It's spellbinding. And you can look at Dreyfus, and he is too. Because it really is a mix of the situation that they're in and campfire stories, like you said. When I watch it now, I half expect a shark to bust through the window behind him (laughs) to scare all the campers. It makes total sense. And by the way, that was Robert Shaw making something out of something that John Milius had also kind of rewritten. And Robert Shaw was a playwright, so really condensing down something to its most impressive elements. By the way, how do you say Adal's eyes? Let's hear your impression. I'm not really good at Robert Shaw. If John Huston had done it, I could nail it. (laughs) Okay, then we'll let my impression stand. Okay, perfect. I really love the orca. I would love to be doing this, to be out on the ocean at night, in a boat, having dinner. I don't often care about movie memorabilia, but I would love to have the bell from the orca. Of course you would. All I can think of is what you told me before we watched The Town That Dreaded Sundown, that there's only a screen door between those (laughs) people and death. In this boat, there's only a plank of damn wood between them. There's a beautiful moment here that I don't know that I notice every time because of what I might be looking at, but every time I do, I love it. That shooting star behind Scheider when he gets his service revolver out of the bag, it's real. It's such an incredible accident, and it makes me happy each time that I see it because I think it gives me hope each time that I see it. Like the universe is reassuring me as a viewer that everything is going to be all right. Not that it's a dead star that we're finally (laughs) seeing. Okay. Well, we're in the home stretch now, and then I feel a little bit like the shark is just messing with them. Conventional weapons obviously are not going to work. And again, presaging the slasher heavyweights that we would come to know and love, Leatherface, Michael Myers, this is a creature now of almost supernatural power. So I feel a palpable sense of relief when they turn to head back into shore. To be running from it, though, it seems uncharacteristically cowardly of Quint. This is not how Ahab would handle it. Is Quint Ahab insane to you? I really finally thought about it with this viewing because it's always bugged me when he destroys the radio. I never quite got it. And then finally, it seems like in tandem with that, that he is running the ship out on purpose. Is he trying to stall them out in the water to force a showdown? Yeah, coming from the stock that I come from, hardy plain folk, whenever he smashes that radio, all that is to me is rub some dirt in it, walk it off. (laughs) I think he's just seeking to cut them off from everything. I think he wants it to go down his way, and when he finally realizes, even though he keeps saying he can't stay down with three barrels, he's staying down with three barrels. So obviously Quint's technology didn't work, so now, reasonably, sort of, he considers Hooper's newfangled methods with the shark cage. So this has always bugged me, and this is a trope in any film that always bothers me. They decide that they're going to at least try to dose the shark with poison, and so it takes all this time to put the cage together, to get the harpoon ready to go, and then Matt Hooper is no sooner in the cage than he basically loses it right away. I hate that. I hate taking all of that time to build something up and then it's gone. Yeah, but it's a bit of genius because it gets you so wrapped up in it and you get so mad about it 
that it turns out to be a completely clever diversion to get us wrapped up in this cage business and then also Quint's fate that every time I totally forget that Dreyfus gets away to come back in the end. It is a classic and incredibly effective misdirection. Before that, we do have the greatest jump scare ever that gets me every time I jumped and the dog was in my lap and the dog jumped with me. <laughs> and that's when the shark is kind of drifting away. And then suddenly he's right there. That scare that you expect inside the boat to come through the glass. It's like he's doing that. Hey, I'm right here. I get tricked every time because there's no music again. Have you ever been on a sinking boat? Thank God, no. <laughs> The sinking boat has to be a terrifying feeling, even without a great white with a grudge busting through the window on you. By the way, that footage of the shark that gets trapped on top of the cage, that's footage by the Taylors, Ron and Valerie Taylor. And when you watch the special features, there's even more frightening footage, if you can imagine it. And that is the footage they shot out of the water when you see that shark trying to break free. And the shark pulls the cage down to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, you're in his house. He's going to do what he wants with that. It is terrifying. The one thing that gives me comfort in the middle of all this terror at the end is that they're within sight of land throughout the ending. And every time I see that in the background on the horizon, it makes me feel a little bit safer. Not a matter of so close yet so far away. No, it seems like imminent safety. It seems like safe harbor is what I associate it with. How do you feel about Quint's death here? Because it's kind of fast, it's brutal, but then in a moment his life is gone and there's no music and he's being pulled underwater. Do you think that that was not bombastic enough or perfect for him? Do you have a strong opinion about it one way or the other? I think it's perfect. And I was actually going to ask you a similar question. How do you think Jaws works in the traditional horror film mold of characters being killed for perceived moral transgressions. Do you see any of that in Quint's death? It seems like more of that, the old ways, the mysticism, that this is the way I was always going to go. And he sidestepped it with the Indianapolis, but it was forever going to come to him because he was forever going to put himself in that position. It is a little over the top, though, now that you say that. Uh, the ending is absurd everything that happens in this last 20 minutes, and it makes you realize in turn truly that the whole movie is absurd. No one makes anything approaching a reasonable decision in this entire movie. They don't close the beaches, they don't take an adequately equipped or properly sized boat, on and on. And this unlikely target shooting that ends the film, it definitely plants both feet in exploitation territory and makes no apologies for it. So we're basically at the end here. And there's a lot of rigorous analysis, I guess, that has been done, that could be done, about why it struck such a nerve and what it represents. But at this point, I feel like, who cares? What's wrong with a crowd pleaser? How do you come down on that? I was struggling, too, with that idea of what do they each represent and what does it mean? And is dad really saving the day here? And I don't know. I don't think it much matters either. It works on so many levels at every single point, at every single beat. If nothing else, we can watch it for great filmmaking, but we also get genuine scares and then genuine pathos from it. I did find one interesting little bit of trivia that may account for how successful this film was that is not necessarily digging into, we mockingly mentioned Watergate, for instance. 
But I saw that between 1965 and 1970, the number of malls in America went from 1,500 to 12,500. So the number of multiplexes, specifically where the kids were, that skyrocketed. So you had a captive audience that didn't care what it was about. What is Jaws about? Whatever you want it to be. And one of the other weird things that I think gets tacked onto this conversation all the time is how Jaws, because of its blockbuster status, was the death knell for new Hollywood, which I think is complete nonsense. For new Hollywood or old Hollywood? No, specifically the new Hollywood of that generation of film school brats like Coppola, Scorsese, Altman. Many times you see this being attributed as the thing that drove the final nail in the coffin for that type of film. Got it. So I think of that as being a relatively new arrival, but a short span of time. Right. New Hollywood, both capitalized. Capital N, capital H. And it doesn't make any sense to me at all, because Taxi Driver came out the year after this, Sorcerer in 1977, Blue Collar, Days of Heaven, The Deer Hunter, they all came in 1978. I could just go on and on. But what it proves to me is that there are just always cycles and nothing ever truly dies. It just changes its energy a little bit and moves on. I do see how the legacy is a mixed bag, definitely, depending on how you feel about commercial versus artistic aims, how it affected the market for smaller films, and whether or not you like swimming in the ocean. But really, this begs the question, because who cares about Altman and Scorsese? <laughs> what have they ever done for us since right. then? What is your favorite Jaws sequel? Jaws 4, The Revenge, because of Michael Caine. Of course it is. Specifically because of the scene in which he is thrashing about in the ocean and then cut to him immediately walking out of the surf completely dry clothes. <laughs> One of many remarkable scenes. What about you? What's your favorite? Oh, The Revenge. Okay. Duh doy. Of course, you got to pick that one. I will say, though, I saw Jaws 3 at the beach, and that did mess with me a little bit. I saw it in the theater, but I didn't see it at the beach. I got the 3D glasses, and I got to watch Dennis Quaid chain smoke throughout the whole movie. <laughs> what about a recommendation from you? What do you have for us there? Well, we have joked about Watergate a couple of times, and this does lead to my recommendation, but not really in that way. I ended up picking something that is also on that very small list of things that whenever they're on, regardless of what point in the film, I will always stop to watch. And like Jaws, I was directed to read the book because I like the film so much. And it did for politics what Jaws did for swimming. I am referring to All the President's Men from 1976. My favorite scene in All the President's Men is when Dustin Hoffman comes to Donald Segretti's house, knocks on the door. Landshark. <laughs> I was thinking Candy of Segretti Graham. because Segretti would be a Jaws victim if he were somehow in that film. So All the President's Men was directed by Alan J. Pacula, adapted from the book of the same name by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, all about the process to investigate and reveal the Watergate burglary and ensuing cover-up. I want to give a special shout-out to Lindsay Krauss in this for turning in a performance in which I do not hate her. I want to go on the record. I don't always hate Lindsay Krauss. You do like her in this. Just House of Games. This she's great in. The film is never not great, never not tense. It's a galvanizing experience. I'm always on the edge of my seat. And really, after reading the book, it's amazing to me how the film is able to consolidate so many names, so many people involved mainly or tangentially, 
and it never sacrifices to the actual authenticity. There are no composites done here. And that adaptation is William Goldman, by the way. So highly recommended. What about you? It's interesting that you mention William Goldman because both of our recommendations in this case are written by two of our favorite screenwriters of all time. Because I am going with Duel from 1971, which is the directorial debut of Steven Spielberg starring Dennis Weaver, and it's written by Lantern favorite Richard Matheson. I always forget that. And he drew upon an incident from his own life for this story. It's about a motorist who is inexplicably menaced by an unseen driver of an immense tanker truck. It's jaws on wheels, basically. And it preys heavily on that same fear of the unknown. We never see the antagonist. We never know why he is so willing to follow this lunacy to its homicidal conclusion. All we know is that he is relentless and that any of us could be Dennis Weaver in this case. And the production design on this truck, I love it so much. It's so incredible and unappealing and vile that somehow a vehicle takes on a personality all its own. It really is a tidy little thriller, and we were lucky enough to see it on the big screen a couple of years ago, which was a really fun time. And I want to say, if you get the chance, do it, because that horn blasting on a top-notch theater sound system will rattle your bones. It's super fun. So once again, that's two great recommendations, All the President's Men and Duel. And that brings us to the end of episode 112. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a lot of great shows, so please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out all of our cinema-loving friends. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Brian Sauer, Andy Wolverton, Laura Cannon, the fine gentlemen of Fuds on Film, Matt and Travis at The Complete Podcast, Richard Sales, and the fine folks at Oscilloscope Laboratories. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so that we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, The 25th Frame, just about anywhere you get your podcasts you can find us. Thank you very much to the nice anonymous person that just left us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.